Still a secret side in plain sight Well the streets are empty That's where we run Everyday people do Everyday things But I can't be one of them I know you hear me now We are a different kind We can do anything We could be stuff on the internet you can just find it out there and sometimes I watch it just to get inspired because people are just awesome and the people I know are awesome they don't do half this stuff but they are still awesome and you know it's not just about what we can do that makes us awesome it's who we are internally it's amazing what goes on in our bodies I mean the average red blood cell in your body lives 120 days that means that your body has to replenish them now, can you imagine how fast? There's 2.5 trillion red blood cells in your body. So your body has to, in order to maintain this 2.5 trillion blood cells, it has to produce 2.5 million blood cells per second. <laughs> per second. 
your body just made two and a half trillion, million, then another two and a half million, another two and a half million, another two and a half million in your bone marrow. It's happening all the time. It's incredible what's going on. That's, that's the population of Toronto, you know, happening each second in your body. Your body is rejuvenating itself. Um, our heart beats around a thousand times, uh, ten, ten, ten thousand times per day, or 30 million times a year. That's a lot. <laughs> Blood's Blood is on a journey around our body. And that journey is 60,000 kilometers long per day, or it travels 60,000 kilometers per miles per day. Considering all the tissues and cells in your body, 25 million new cells are being produced every second. That's a little less than the population of Canada. Every second, that many cells are being renewed. Our bodies are incredible, absolutely amazing. Your sneezes generate uh, 166 kilometers an hour wind. Coughs come in at uh, 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 100 kilometers an hour. You know, when we touch something, that feeling of touching it travels to our brains at 400 kilometers an hour. Just boom, instant, it's there. Our eyes can distinguish 10 million different shades of color. 10 million. And think about our eyes, we, we have, we're binocular, right? We have two eyes. So our brains triangulate the speed of things coming at us. Every uh, a moving object, we can triangulate the, mo the movement of that object. If we had to use a computer to do that, it would take forever. But it's because we have two eyes, and because they're slightly apart, that makes a triangle out of everything. And as a ball moves towards us or whatever, we calculate all of that. Can you imagine how much calculation is going on in the middle of a tennis match to calculate where the ball is going to be in a, in a split second after the other person has hit it and then to run over there like, like this lady here. Uh, what's her name? Williams. Uh, just incredible to get there. And our brains do that without us even being aware of what's going on in there to do all of that calculation to figure out where that ball's gonna be uh, within a split second, and then, and then send the message to our body to get our body over to where it needs to be, and then get that message over to our arm to get our arm to come up with a perfect swing to get the ball back over the net. It's incredible. All that happens in a split second when you're playing tennis. I love tennis, by the way. It's awesome. <laughs> Our lungs inhale about 2 million liters of air a day. 2 million! <laughs> That's more than what's in, in this room. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And the surface area of our lungs is more than a tennis field. Or a tennis court, I should say. Our nose is our personal air conditioning unit. It cools the air when it's too warm, and it warms it up before, it, uh, before we inhale it if it's too cold. One square inch of our hand we have nine feet of blood cells, 200, I'm sorry, 600 pain sensors, 9,000 nerve endings in one, one, one square inch, 36 heat sensors, and 72 pressure sensors. People are truly amazing. <laughs> we are incredible beings. Uh, and when we consider the increase, in, how do you say that? Intricacies, that's the word. Can't even say it. Uh, of the body, it's truly amazing. We are a marvel. Yet, five weeks from Tuesday, 
Canada will pass legislation that says we can end the life of someone if they request it and they're sick enough. And we can just wipe all that out. And sometimes we think that because people can't do those amazing things that we saw in the beginning video, and they're in pain, they should have the right to just ask someone to kill them. And that's the prevailing thought in Canada. Most Canadians believe that that's okay. That's fine. I mean, why let people suffer is the big uh, thing that people are saying. Why, why do they just have to keep suffering and suffering and suffering? Well, we're going to deal with that today. <laughs> Belgium has passed this law a few years back, and now 1,500 people are uh, request to be killed, or 1,500 people are, are, are die each year from doctor-assisted suicide, and about half of them, they figure, they don't have a clear statement from the patients that they want to die, about half of them. But you know what? This isn't that surprising that our society has moved in this direction because our society has devalued life for 50 years already. Back in 1969, Parliament decided that uh, abortions were okay. In the first year, there were 5,000 abortions. The next year, there were 10,000 abortions. The next year, there were 15,000. And it kept growing until within a, a decade, there was 100,000 babies being erased in our society every year for a decade. Actually, it's dropped off a little bit recently, 80,000, still a lot. That means, I have that number here somewhere, maybe I don't. It means that all of the, the, the number, the, basically there's been 400, no, not 400, 44 million babies have been aborted in Canada. And we just simply are saying, life's not important. Four million, that's, that's, that's the population of Alberta. We've just wiped out. Said, oh, they don't, they don't need to live. And we've justified it in so many different ways. We've said, oh, it's a piece of the, piece of the woman's body. She can do what she wants with her own body. It's not. The baby has different DNA than the mother while it's in the mother's womb. That's the marker of a different person, I would say. Every person in the whole world has a marker of DNA, and they're all different. They're not the same. It's not a part of her body. But we've been fed the lie, and it's the lie of convenience. Whatever's convenient. You know, we, we don't want a child right now. Or I'm a single mother. Or, and, and, of course, there's always the, the great uh, one that they pull out. You know, well, what if, what if you were raped? You don't really want this child, and... It's going to, going to make, remind you of the rape all the time. You know how few times that ever happens? <laughs> Unbelievably minuscule amount. That is not why we do abortions. We do abortions because it's convenient, not because of these extreme cases where maybe a mother's life is in danger. That never happens anymore. Mother's lives aren't in danger any longer. We have ways of saving the mother's life and the baby's life we don't have to answer that question any longer. No, we, we are killing children because it's, in, it's inconvenient. So 
what's a Christian to do? And, I, and just while I'm on the topic of abortion, I'm going to move back to euthanasia in just a minute. But while I'm on the topic of abortion, uh, this has been on my heart. And I feel like as a, as a Christian, someone who believes that all the stuff I'm going to talk to you about in this message, that um, it's not right for me to just sit idly by while innocent people are murdered. I don't think that that's right for a Christian to do that. If I was living in Nazi Germany during the 30s, would I have sat by while my government slaughtered Jewish people? Would I have sat by? If you're doing nothing about the abortion epidemic in our country, then the answer probably is yes, you would do nothing. If you are doing something about that, um, and you're concerned and you're raising objection, then I'd say, yeah, probably in the 1930s you would have done something too. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves that we are so different now, you know. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I do every year, uh, I always go to the Parliament Hill, and next week on Wednesday, if you'd like to join me on Parliament Hill to make our voices known and say there are tens of thousands of people in Canada who are willing to take the day off, head over to Parliament Hill and say, we object. And uh, you'll be part of tens of thousands of people gathered there on the hill. And uh, that number keeps growing every year. And I just encourage you to be part of it. You actually live here in Ottawa. People come all the way from Vancouver to participate in this walk. Um, my mother does it actually in Vancouver, uh, in, in front of the courts there. But yes, we have opportunity in this country to make our positions known. We can write letters. We can do these things. But if we say nothing and do nothing, we actually are participants in uh, the evil of our own country. We need to say something. Anyways, back to euthanasia. Right now, the law in Canada, uh, in, in Section 241, says everyone who aids or abets a person to commit suicide, whether the suicide, suicide ensues, ensues or, or not, is guilty of an indictable offense and is liable to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 14 years. You know, you know, I remember, I remember not, not too long ago when I was a teenager that the big debate was whether passive euthanasia was reasonable. I mean, we debated this. Like, okay, so if you're on a machine and it's keeping you alive, uh, is it okay to pull the plug out and let the person die naturally, sort of? Uh, and we debated this in, in university, in, a lot, in church. It was talked about a lot. Um, do you know that today passive, passive um, euthanasia is pretty much the norm? And it, it's, it's no longer called passive euthanasia. Uh, it's now called good care. <laughs> That's what it's called. And basically it means that when someone decides that they want to die or whether, when the family decides that this person has lived long enough, that they would just remove care from that person. Um, and this can be, you know, like a complicated thing where there's uh, a lot of machines keeping the person alive and they basically start disconnecting the machines and the person dies. Or it can be um, that they're, they're living just fine, but they can't eat on their own. They can't, they can't raise their hand to give themselves food. They can't raise a glass of water to give themselves drink. And so they just stop doing it for the person. And the person dies from hunger or from uh, um, 
uh, yeah, dehydration, yeah, thank you. Um, and, oh man, I'm thirsty. <laughs> I don't want that to be the cause of my death. So, anyways, um, so, so this was the big debate, whether this was, was reasonable or, or loving or, or, or should Christians participate in this? And I remember thinking, no way, that's completely wrong. And, but you know what? I became a pastor one day. And now all of a sudden I'm dealing with lots of families who are saying to me like, well, we, we don't think we should keep this life going. I mean, it's just too hard. It's too hard on the person it's, and it's still a natural death. And, and you know what? My opinion's changed a little bit and I'm going to be sharing about that at the end of the message um, and why and, and some of those things. But that was the big debate 25 years ago. And now all of a sudden the debates change to active euthanasia. When someone wants to die and they're suffering, should they just pull the plug? And should, or not, not pull the plug. No, it's no longer pull the plug. It's inject with chemicals that will kill the person. Um, and that's the debate now. Will my opinion change in 15 years on this subject? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. It's because of what the Bible says about the human body. It's because of this vi these videos I've been showing you about how awesome people are. It's because of the way God designed us and the facts of what the Bible says about people that we don't have the right to take another person's life. Uh, we don't have that right. Um, so what does the Bible say about euthanasia? What does the Bible say about abortion? Uh, where does it fit into our paradigm of theology? Is it like number one? Uh, or is it like the core? Is it the core doctrine? New slide. New slide. Is, it is it important, important doctrine? doctrine? Is it substantial, substantial doctrine? doctrine? Or is, or is it a, it a peripheral, peripheral issue? issue? What, what is, is it? it? Euthanasia. Where, where does, does it, fit? it fit? And where does uh, passive euthanasia fit in this? And so I'm just going to let you think about that for a while. I'm not going to ask you this time. Let's have a look at what the Bible says about these, these subjects of human life. First of all, the Bible says that God is the giver of human life. He's the one that, that gives, gives life. life. Human, human life proceeds, proceeds from, from God. God. Uh, uh, Genesis, Genesis 2, 2 verse 7, seven is actually, actually in the second chapter of the Bible. Bible it says, when God, God formed man from the dust of the ground and, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man, man became, became a living being. being. So, so God, God created life through uh, his breath. He, he gave us life. And in Acts 17, we also read that uh, he gives everyone, everyone life, life and, and breath and, and everything else. else. That's, That's what, what God, God does. does. So, so human, human life, life is, is actually, actually very, very precious, precious to, God. to God. It's very important to him. He created it, and now it's very important to him. Now think about it. When my boys, they're not here, so I don't, I don't have to worry about embarrassing them. So, <laughs> no, I wouldn't embarrass them anyways. When they were young, sometimes they would build a creation. And I remember one of the boys building this, this sort of army out of... Uh, Oh, I forget what the little things were called. But basically, set this whole army up. And then the other son came along with a soccer ball and said, Oh, this is a big rock, and threw it into the middle of the army and knocked them all flat and knocked them all over. Guess what happened? He got in trouble. Why? 
because he broke his brother's creation. And when they built Lego or whatever they built, the rule was you don't take apart your brother's Lego creation in order to make your own Lego creation. You got to get permission from him first. And you know what? God designed us and we are his creation and he owns us, therefore. And so we aren't at liberty to ruin his creation because he made us. Life comes from him. And that's why this is so important for Christians. Uh, human life is precious to God. The Bible says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God said, you notice how many, many times, times it says he created them? He made, them. <laughs> he made he them. them. But notice, notice also, also what, what it, it says. says. It says that he made him in his own image. That doesn't mean that, that God looks like us. No. What it means is that uh, we have things that remind us of God. Um, so just like the, the image in the mirror is not you, uh, so we are not God, but we display things that are God-like. In other words, God has a personality. In other words, God has volition. He decides things. God has a mind and thinks, and we have those things. And so we are far above the other created orders because we are made and designed after God with all of these things that function in us to make us different than the rest of creation. The Bible says, Whoever shed, sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the, in the image, image of God, God has God, God made, made mankind. mankind. And so, so it's, it's because, because we are like, like God, God that this, this heavy-duty heavy punishment, punishment, capital punishment, was instituted in the Old Testament. Now we know also from the New Testament that uh, when Jesus caught, or when they caught a woman in adultery, brought her to Jesus, Jesus didn't call for capital punishment that the Old Testament called for. Uh, but he did say, go and sin no more. And so we realize that since Jesus Christ came, capital punishment is no longer necessary because, in fact, Jesus died for the sins, including murder, of all people. And if they put their faith in Christ, of course, he'll wash that away. We have a justice system that continues to work and make sure that uh, murderers don't get away with things. Uh, but in God's eyes, if a person accepts Christ, their sins are actually washed away. And we often, and someone actually asked me, Why, what about murderers in heaven? Like, how does that make sense? It only makes sense when we realize how sufficient the blood of Christ is for us. It's the fact that an innocent person willingly went to the cross to pay for our sins that allows even a murderer to find forgiveness in Christ. Now, of course, the murderer or anyone else, who whatever sin they're, they're dealing with, they have to change and become more Christ and become like Christ when they receive Christ. Can't go on, you know, being a mass murderer and expect to get to heaven. <laughs> that doesn't work. Once a person has put their faith in Christ, their life changes. Um, even, even the Lord was concerned about the life of a murderer. When, Ain, when uh, Cain killed Abel, God was concerned because Cain said, oh, the burden of my, my guilt is too much and, and my punishment is too much. And if people find me, they're going to kill me for killing my brother. And God put a mark on his forehead and said, no, I'm going to protect you so that no one will kill you or they will be punished. And so God cares about even murderers 
And the Bible says, uh, don't worry about your life. You're much more important than the birds of the air and the, uh, and the, and the, the flowers of the field. We're very important to God. Life, in fact, is protected by God. As, as I mentioned, um, God is concerned about safety. In fact, it's interesting, you know, workmen's compensation does a lot to ensure work, workmen's safety in the world. You know, and they're, they're, you have to build a little fence around the, the building if you're, if you're up three floors and just to keep people from falling off. Well, actually, you know, that comes straight out of the Bible. Workmen's compensation would be proud. When you build a new house, make a parapet around the roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. See, God cares about our safety. He cares about how we live our life and whether we're concerned about safety as well. The Bible says, do not shed innocent blood in this place. So God, secondly, God only, uh, God is the giver of life, but only God has the right to take away life. This is what the Bible says. Death is God's appointment. We have an appointment with God. I huh? hope you don't miss your appointment with God, but it's going to happen one day. <laughs> the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. So I also hope that you have Christ in your life so you don't have to face the judgment without your sins washed away. Uh, because that will be a terrifying, horrible day for many, many people. But yes, God appoints a time for us to die. And a person's days are determined. How long they'll live, it's determined. How long, when you de- die, that date is already determined. determined. God, God already, already knows, knows when, when you're going to die and how, how you're going to die. die. Job, Job says, says you've decreed, decreed the number, the number of, his of his months and have set, set limits, limits that he cannot, cannot exceed. exceed. Um, um, in Matthew, Jesus says you can't even add a single hour onto your life by worrying. <laughs> so don't worry. It's not going to change anything. Uh, the Bible says you turn, people, excuse me, you turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. Yet you sweep people away into the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up, but by evening it is dry and withered. So yes, we are frail humans, and we do die. And God is the one who has the power to give life, and he has the power to take life away. We always allowed our children to dismantle their own creations, (laughs) you know, but not each other's. And that's the way it is with God as well. God prohibits the unlawful taking of life. I'm sure you're familiar with many of these things. You shall not murder. It's mentioned three times in the Bible. Uh, Well, actually four times uh, at least. Um, And human life is is precious. God punishes the unlawful taking of life. We've already talked about that. Whoever sheds human blood, by his blood shall humans be shed. Or his blood shall be shed by other humans. Um, It's it's also interesting to note that the Bible um, gives room for unintentional murder, homicide. If it's unintentional then you had to run to a city of refuge, grab a hold of the horns of the altar until the priest would come along and hear your case. And people couldn't kill you while you were there unless they heard your case, whether you were innocent, whether it was just a mistake, or whether you intended to do it. Even uh, King David was accused by God 
of murder when he killed Uriah the Hittite by allowing him to be killed in battle. And so all humans are precious to God. Children are precious to God. The unborn children are precious to God. God cares about the unborn children. Um, First of all, we know this because children are God's plan. God plans who's going to have kids and when they're going to have kids. You can see this all through the Bible. It's uh, repeated over and over. I mean, God came to, to Sarah and, and Abraham and said, next year you're going to have a baby. How did God know that? Well, God was planning on doing a miracle in Sarah's womb to help her have a baby. Um, the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's parents said, next year you're going to have a child. And, and they're like, what are you talking about? We're, we're barren. We've, we haven't had kids for ages. <laughs> We've never had kids. And uh, how can this be? We're old too. And God, God said, said, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. Elisha said, said to a, a, a widow, widow, an old widow, uh, not a widow, sorry, uh, an older family, where he was staying with this lady and her husband, and uh, he asked his servant, what, what should we do for this lady? She's been so kind to us. And the servant said, oh, well, you know, she's, she's, uh, she's barren. And so Elijah goes to the woman and says, uh, about this time next year, you will have a son, son in your in arms. arms. <laughs> oh, no, my, <laughs> my Lord, she objects. Please, Please man, man of God, God don't, don't mislead your servant. Your servant. But, the but the woman became pregnant the next year. year. And about that, that same time, she gave birth, birth to a son, son just, just as, as Elijah had told her. her. Uh, uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, before I f- that God said to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to na- the nations. Before John the Baptist was born, his parents heard all about um, or the fact that he would be born and that he would, uh, res- he would go before the, the Lord Almighty. Um, and of course, Jesus, before he was born, the angel came and, and announced it to Mary. And so on and on we see that, Jesus, or that God is the planner of children, and he instigates that. And you might think, well, actually, I instigated it one day when my wife and I were enjoying ourselves. No, actually, God instigates life. And he puts it together. And he puts the, the babies in the mother's womb. He uses people to do that, of course. Um, children are precious to God. And they're to be treasured, not thrown away like excess human tissue. Children, the Bible says, children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring, a reward from him. Children are a reward. And yet, in our society, a quarter of the women feel it's a curse and want to get rid of this reward. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior, or children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame. They will contend with their opponents in courts. I uh, can't imagine aborting any of my children. <laughs> I mean, I remember standing up in front of, uh, on Parliament Hill, praying for our country um, and when, Je- when Jennifer was pregnant with Jason and just talking about the fact that, you know, it's legal in Canada for Jennifer to abort this child. It just horrified me as I was praying uh, in front of well, thousands of people for our country. And I often feel this verse, uh, 
They, they will contend with their, their opponents, opponents in, in court. court. Maybe, Maybe that's, that's a tennis, tennis court. court. No, I'm, I'm training all my sons, sons to play well. well. No, no, not really. <laughs> but you know, there's this huge amount of pride in my heart when I walk with my family and see my sons and just, ah, oh, what a blessing. Blessed is the man. I, I feel very blessed to have a family like that. Your wife will be a fruitful vine within your house, and your children will be like olive shoots around, around your table. table. Yes, yes, this, this will, will be, be a blessing, blessing for the man, man who fears the Lord. Lord. Praise, Praise God. God. Children, Children are God-given. God given. Uh, uh, when when, when uh, Jacob ran, or es- Esau ran and hugged Jacob, and he says, hey, what, what's with all the women and children? And, and Jacob replied, these are the children that the Lord has provided. Um, and also Joseph said to his father, when his father asked, hey, who, well, who are these kids? And again, Joseph said to his dad, these are the children that the, the Lord, Lord provided. provided. Um, another another point, point that the Bible makes really, really clear is that infants ought never to be sacrificed to the idol Moloch in any way. And there's just tons of verses in the Bible. And you know, you know what? what? I, think I think that, that we, we are sacrificing our children, our children to the, the altar, altar of, of convenience. convenience. In our, in our country. country. In the, the antenatal, antenatal life, life is very clearly described as human in the Bible. The preborn children are absolutely human as described in the Bible. Um, Job says, Did he not make me in, my, 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 in the in womb, womb as, as he made, made them? them? Did not, not one, one, the same one form both of us within our mothers? mothers? Uh, the, uh, the psalmist, psalmist says, says, for you created, created my, my innermost, innermost being. being. You knit me together in my mother's wombs. Because I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your, your works, works are wonderful. wonderful. I know that well. well. My, my frame, frame is not, not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before any one of them came to be. Isaiah says, before I was born, the Lord called me. How does God call people when they're still in the mother's womb? From my mother's womb, he spoke in my name. Um, Jeremiah said the same thing. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So God even knows us before we're even formed. Uh, It's interesting that Luke uses the word baby when he's describing the unborn um, John the Baptist. When John the Baptist is in his mother's womb... He describes it as a baby, not as a child, really. It's the same word for as infant. He doesn't use the, a fetus or, um, you know, the unborn person or the not yet born person. No, he calls him a, a person. And in fact, he was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in the womb and he leapt for joy when he heard the greeting of Mary. He was already, he was human, you know. It's pretty clear. Um, and then in Exodus, when, uh, when they're, talking about the punishment of people, it says that if someone harms an unborn child and that child is born with a broken, broken leg, leg or, or, or uh, some, some harm, harm has come, come to, to the, the child, child, that the, the person, person who did the harm will be treated in the same, same way. way. And, if, and if it basically, basically says, says life, life for life. life. So, so the, the same, same punishment for harming an unborn child, child it's the same, same as the punishment, punishment for harming a born child or a born person. Preborn children have the propensity to sin. Did you know that? You can sin while you're not even born yet. (laughs) 
uh, King David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Wow. So those are some of the things about, obviously I'm, ta I'm talking about abortion here, about children. So even pre-born children are human and they're part of, they're God's creation. And God basically makes it absolutely clear in his word that we're not to touch his creation. Um, next slide. So then we move to the elderly. Now the Bible is very clear that the elderly, the elderly should, should be, be honored. honored. Do not, Do not despise, despise your mother, your mother when, when she's old, old, the Bible, Bible says. says. Um, the Bible says, stand, stand up in the presence of the aged and show respect for the elderly and revere your God. God. I am the Lord. It doesn't say just the elderly that are healthy and strong. No. I remember I was at Canadian Tire one day and some guy was cursing this guy for being old, basically. I was just like, dude, someday you are going to be old too. <laughs> Just, I was just so appalled. Um, the Bible says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he was your father. Um, the older should be cherished. The Bible says, If a widow or has grandchildren, or, or children or grandchildren, children, they, they should, should learn, learn to, to, first of all, put, put their religion, religion into practice, practice by, by caring, caring for their, their own family, family and, and so, so repaying, repaying their parents and grandparents. For this, this is pleasing to God. God. You know, you in know, this, this culture, culture of throwing away things that are old and brittle and no longer useful. We are starting to see that this is the way people are treating parents and grandparents. They're no longer useful. They're no longer productive. I don't feel like caring for them. I'm just going to ship them off to some place where someone else will look after them and we'll pay for it through our taxes and that will be that. And my mother says that when she visited my father in the nursing home, that they loved her because she, she would come every day. And, and there were people in that home who hadn't had a visit from a family member for months. Some for years. And, they, and it's no wonder we have this culture that just says, oh, well, it, why, wouldn't it be just better off if we just got rid of them? It's no wonder because we don't care any longer. And I was so touched that my family was able to be with my dad all the time through his illness. And I felt terrible living halfway across the country, not being able to go there and just be with him and, and do that duty for all those years that he cared for me and, and just repaying that and giving him the honor and respect that I give him. And I was, I was just... I was so glad for my, the rest of my family that they were able to do that. And I felt really bad that I couldn't. You know, Joseph looked after his father and brothers first when, they, when he brought them to Egypt. Um, David, when he was being chased by Saul, what did he think of? He thought of his parents. He said, they're in danger because I'm in danger. And he took his parents and he brought them to Moab and asked the king of Moab to look after his parents. It's pretty incredible. Um, Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, what did he say? John, here's your mother. Mom, here's your son. He's appointing, he's looking after his mom. So important. You know, 
whatever you think about any of these issues, one of the things that you have to realize is that if we as Christians are standing up for life and saying life is important, um, abortion is wrong, you know, the world doesn't really hear us if we don't really care about the young girl who's got pregnant long before, you know, when she's 16. And we just write her off as a sinful, sinful girl and we're not going to have anything to do with her, which is the way the church has often dealt with uh, teenage abortions. And if we treat teenagers that way, then what right do we have to say that it's wrong for her to have an abortion? We need to show love and compassion to those girls. We need to uh, have, you know, our, our uh, adoption system is broken beyond repair almost. Uh, and that's where Christians need to st step up and say, I will adopt some kids. I will take kids into my home. And I know that there's families who've said that they would do that in, the, the, in our church. And the adoption agency said, no, no, you're not, you're not fit for some reason or other. And I'm just appalled. And I'm like, well, what are we supposed to do? And what about caring for the, those who are terminally ill? Those are things that we need to do. I'm so happy, so excited that we have a pastoral care team that is growing and is con concerned and caring for those who are sick and dying. And to me, this is a vital importance that we care for the people that are sick and dying. So it's not just right just to say, oh, well, we, we draw this line in the sand and, and you know, uh, we believe that this is what's right, that to kill anyone is wrong, without actually caring for the people. It's not about theology. It's about people. And we are a people that need to care for, for other people and care for, the, for sinners and saints alike. Now, I promised you at the beginning I was going to deal with um, the whole concept of uh, passive euthanasia. So I'm just going to touch on that uh, before we end. Um, so passive euthanasia is just allowing someone to die a natural death without intervening with them. And it's, it's a difficult subject because honestly, if you don't give someone what they need, they're going to die. Uh, if you don't give starving kids in Africa what they need, they will die. Um, so it is a form of murder, actually, uh, in, in a sense. It can, it can be. And so this has troubled me for a long time. <laughs> and um, I put this cat in the category of peripheral rather than uh, core or, or uh, central to our, our belief system. And, and the reason I do is because... In the last 30 years, the medical system has become so well equipped that we can keep people alive who really aren't alive. We can actually keep people who are brain dead. We can keep them their tissues functioning. And so we've come to this place where somehow we need, we need to figure out how in the world this works, right? Like it's complicated. And I don't have any Bible passages to give us advice on what is right and what is wrong. I know that God is compassionate, and I know that he cares for people, but in this particular age where we can kind of keep people going and going and going and going, and it kind of what we're doing 
it seems to me, and this is just my personal opinion, it seems to me that we're prolonging a death stance for these people. That we're actually saying, uh, we're, we're not actually prolonging their life so much as we're prolonging their death. And this is just something that I, I've concluded, and I often don't say much when people ask me for my opinion about specific people, uh, whether that we should take them off uh, the respirator or whether we should, you know, just allow them to die as they are. I don't say a lot because, so if you ask me that, I'm not going to give you my opinion, okay? Just, just let you know ahead of time. And I'll just say, you know what, that's between you and God and, and that person. Um, because I realize that there's something wonky about keeping a, a body alive when there's just nothing there anymore. So where do you draw the line? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I cannot give you a line in the sand. It seems to me to be unreasonable to, to not give people a drink of water when they need it. I think that that's just not reasonable. Um, if they cannot chew, they cannot salivate, they cannot swallow the food, I don't know anymore. You know, like, do you, do you stick intravenous in them and keep them alive that way? I'm not sure. But if they can swallow, if they can have food, I think it's reasonable to help them do that. Um, that's my own personal opinion. You don't need to take it as your own. Um, but if they're beyond that, and there's machines that are keeping them alive, my own personal opinion is that um, we're prolonging their death, and that's probably not that healthy. So you can probably disagree. Some, I'm sure there's disagreement with what I've just said, and that's fine. I'm okay with that, and um, we can discuss it. You can give me emails. Send me stuff. <laughs> I've been getting a lot of those recently. So, uh, and that's, that's fine because I, I think it's important that we discuss these things. It's important to talk about it. And so long as there's not someone in your life, I mean, I know that's when it's important to talk about it, but it's very difficult for me as your pastor to deal with it at that time. Please come and deal with it beforehand. And we'll talk beforehand so that it's, it, we can talk without this huge emotional drag on you um, to, to do it one way or the other. Um, so you, it's important. We all have to come to these decisions because in our hospitals today, uh, passive euthanasia is the accepted practice all around. And so you need to come to your own conclusion about how you are going to deal with your elderly, the elderly people in your family. It will come to that. You... You know, I mean, you, we all have four grandparents. We all have four parents. I mean, we all have eight grandparents, and we all have four parents. Two, no. <laughs> That's terrible math. We all have two parents and four grandparents. If we're married, we have four parents. That's where it's coming from. If we're married, we have four parents and eight grandparents. So we end up having to make this decision, and it's better... Figure it out yourself earlier on so that you have some way of getting through this maze before it comes. My, my dad um, was sick. He had Alzheimer's. And um, my family basically agreed that we would take no heroic measures 
to bring him back to life. In other words, they wouldn't bring the paddles when his heart stopped. They wouldn't uh, do any of those heroic things to get him back. And I remember the night before he died, I was, I was over here and, and some people prayed that he would be healed. And I was like, I don't want him to be healed. I want him to go with his Lord. I want him to go. I, and I'd never felt that way before. And I remember being with people who told me that. We want our loved one to go to be with Christ. And I remember thinking, boy, I, I don't know what to say to that. I, I, I agreed with them, but I, I always, it was always sort of foreign to me. But then that day when, you know, when, when my dad was sick in the hospital, and I, I just, yeah, I want him to go. And so, you know, that feeling, I don't believe that that's wrong at all, to want your loved one to go to be with Jesus. His life was terrible. I saw the video of him passing away, and it made me sick. And it was, it was awful. And his last few months were awful. Um, and so to want to carry that on just for a little longer, I just didn't feel like that was what God wanted me to do, just to, to, to you know, do all these heroic things. They could have done them. He was right next. He was in a nursing home right next to a hospital. They could have dragged him over there and done a bunch of stuff. He probably would have lived another week. But they didn't. And he passed into glory, and I'm, I was grateful <laughs> for that. Um, so we need to decide these things early on. Sorry to get so heavy at the end of the message here. But this is life, and we do need to know what we're going to do and recognize that there is a difference, I believe, between certain kinds of passive euthanasia and active euthanasia. Okay. We are going to share the Lord's Supper at this time. And uh, so um, I'm going to ask the ushers, the communion stewards to come forward. And we're going to focus on one of the things that God did to show his great love for the awesome people that he created. And what God did was he allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live a perfect life and then die for our sins so that we could be made righteous and holy before God. And so because he died for us, it really shows us the worth of the human being. It says that God himself was willing to experience death in order that we might experience eternal life. That's pretty awesome. And so uh, the Bible says that Jesus took bread and when he had broke it, he gave thanks. And so let's give thanks for the bread this, this day. Father, we thank you for this bread. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless it. And Lord, we pray that as we partake of it, we would be reminded of how much you love us. How important we are to you. How absolutely vital we are because you died on the cross for our sins. So, Lord, we just ask that you would bless this bread and bless our remembrance of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.